Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. I'm Hans from Key Aero and uh, I have Jamie Ewan with me, Deputy Editor of Fly Pass. Hi, Jamie. Morning. And also Ben Dunnell, Editor of Aeroplane. Hi, Ben. Good morning. Hi, it's your first time on the podcast, Ben. How do you feel? I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. That's no, no, thanks for coming. <laughs> uh, we tend to find it's sort of uh, it's quite a nice little uh, you know half an hour away from the uh, the rigors of um, you know the, the the grind really. So we just get to chat about what we love really. So uh, you know it's all sort Absolutely. of quite cool really. So um, you know today we are talking. There's only one thing we can talk about really. It's the 85th anniversary of the first flight of um, the Spitfire. We love an anniversary in historic aviation, don't we? Oh yes. <laughs> and this is this is um this is sort of you know um quite a big quite a big one. Let's go let's go back really. Um, I suppose the Spitfire is 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 rightly seen as this sort of triumph of um, British engineering, but you know it wasn't it wasn't entirely sort of um, plain sailing at the um, at the start, was it, guys? No, no. It's um, oh, sorry, Ben. Continue. No, no. I was just going to say that you know, it's, I think it's always important to um, uh, view these aircraft, even the most famous aeroplanes in the world, whether it be something like the Spitfire, the Douglas DC three, Concorde, or whatever it might be, in the proper context, and that includes going over the rough bits as well as the smooth. That's it. It's, uh, and I mean, when you look at the the Spitfire, what became the Spitfire that went on to become Britain's saviour during the Battle of Britain, started off as, as, as a failure, and especially in R.J. Mitchell's eyes, especially when it was the Type 224, that uh, ungainly gold-winged sort of open cockpit design they came up with to, be, to meet the specification. Yes, and then when it um, uh, obviously was time to introduce what became the definitive Spitfire in terms of the shape that we know and love, even then... Not all the problems have been ironed out. Inevitably, you know, no aeroplane ever is perfect upon uh, entering service. Uh, for a start, it was late. Uh, the initial Spitfire production contract with the Air Ministry was signed in June 1936 for 310 aircraft. The first production Mark One didn't go off, didn't come off the production line in Southampton until May 1938, and then of course it still had to go through further testing. So, you know, this was not a simple process. And then when the aircraft did enter service and uh, during the early stages of World War II, and obviously we're, we're paraphrasing a great deal here, there was a great deal of trouble with the cannon armament on 19 Squadron's Mark 1s that was supposed to have been what we'd now call such a game changer, but actually simply didn't work. Mm. Yep, yeah. Let's go back it's, to um, some, some, some of that sort of manufacturing process. I love seeing those, um, you know, pictures inside, you know, like the the, the Castle Bromwich factory, and, you know, and, and so on. But I suppose it was quite ambitious, wasn't it? You know, quite a com- you know some sort of very complex parts. You know, what was it? You know, ten different companies or whatever. You know, putting this stuff together. I mean, even you know, modern you know people like Boeing still have. Problems doing that now, don't they? <laughs> Let alone in the late 1930s and early 1940s. I mean, Spitfire production, it, it was one of those things at the, at the time. Uh, 
you know, you, you, you took aeroplanes like the Hawker Fury, for example, you know, a, a wooden and fabric biplane. And, you know, the, the uh, sorry, the hurricane came along and started pushing the boundaries. And then with the sort of Britain's expansion, realizing that there was war on the horizon with Germany, they, they wanted to push the boundaries even more. And that's when the Spitfire came along with its, you know, really complex designs, a fully stressed metal stress skin fuselage. I mean, the, the elliptical wing, which is the icon, the iconic part of the Spitfire, um, and it really did push the boundaries. And it, it, as, as Ben says, the, the, the initial production contract, uh, Supermarine really struggled with it because they were also at the time building aeroplanes for Gloucester under license. So they were building aeroplanes that were standard sort of biplanes of the time and, and whatnot, and then suddenly going from that onto this really complex aeroplane. And it's interesting to speculate what would have happened if war had broken out earlier. I mean, 19 Squadron was put on readiness at the time of the Munich crisis in '38, um, but its aircraft would have been barely ready for combat then. So how would we view the Spitfire today had it been thrust into battle a year or so earlier than actually became the case? That's it. You, you, you wonder at that point if something like the hurricane would have taken the limelight because that was sort of further ahead of itself, even though it only flew four months before the Spitfire. It, it managed yeah. to pass through all its trials far quicker. Yes, not least by dint, as you say, of, of being a much simpler uh, airframe. That, that's exactly it. Why, why was the um, elliptical wing such a, such a nightmare to produce? Well, it, there's, there's lots of there's lots of myths about the elliptical wing with the Spitfire in terms of that it was actually taken from a, a Heinkel 70 uh, transporter from Germany, but it wasn't. I, th- I think it was about 1934 that uh, Mitchell had said that he wanted the elliptical wing because it was the best wing to fit a undercarriage in it, a retracted undercarriage, um, and fit all the armament in as well, and it would also create less drag. And higher speeds, you know, when this initial specification came out, they were wanting an aeroplane that was capable of 250 miles an hour, which in in those days was just bizarre, especially for an in-service type aeroplane. Yes, the Schneider Trophy races had pushed the boundaries up to 350, you know, approaching 400 miles in some cases, but they were specially designed for it. This was an aeroplane that standard guys had to climb into and fly. So, you know, and, and a speed of 250 miles an hour then was just mind boggling. And uh, the, the the elliptical wing did give um, Mitchell the best option to do that. I love those. I, I I just really really love looking at the pitch. You know the pictures inside the factories. I just I just wa- look at them for absolutely sort of hours. I love that picture of um. I think it was from 1941. Uh, like Winston Churchill walking around the factory, like you know looking at everything sort of being made. Um, that would be quite nerve wracking, wouldn't it? Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing Imagine with the like- Spitfire as well is that the, the production game was quintessentially British. Whenever there was a problem, they found a way to solve it, and none, none more so than after the Southampton Blitz of September 1940. The Germans made this huge effort to take out uh, Supermarine's uh, Southampton factories in an attempt to stop Spitfires getting to the front line. And in doing so, they did decimate the factories. But within six months, the the British people, Supermarine and loads of other people had come together and managed to create this secret Spitfire sort of organisation where they were building Spitfires in random rooms, be it barns, hotel rooms, spare bedrooms, uh, uh, bus shelters. Um, 
and rebuilding Spitfires. And within six months, they had restarted round-the-clock production yeah, with a clandestine it, force of sort of uh, women, children, and non-combatant men. And of course, Germany was <laughs> was quite well aware of the ineffectiveness, to some extent, of bombing um, uh, munitions factories and armament production facilities and the like, because similar efforts had been made when Britain had bombed those facilities in Germany. And Hitler said in April 1942, the munitions industry cannot be interfered with effectively by air raids. And he went on to say, in both countries, the armament industry is so decentralised that the armament potential cannot really be interfered with. So um, there is a definite question as to the strategic effectiveness of those raids. Very much so, yeah. Ben, you you um you were mentioning about the, those difficult the difficult sort of you know days of um, Spitfire's early service. Talk a bit more about that. Well, it was the cannon armament that was really the um, uh, the problem. The intention had been from the outset that the Mark One Spitfire would be able to um, uh, to mount cannon armament. Um, now, the wing design that we were talking about was a bit of a limitation in that regard because the um, Hispano 20mm cannon that were fitted had to be mounted on their sides. And for that and other reasons, there were constant stoppages. I mean, they simply didn't work. When the Battle of Britain started, and the official date for that is, of course, given as the 10th of um, July, it had only three of these Mark 1B cannon-armed Spitfires. And of course, the cannon had much greater destructive power than the um, 0.303-inch Browning machine guns that they'd had prior to that. But the stoppages just rendered the aircraft effectively uh, useless, and the firing bursts could only last six seconds. So they had to devise tactics as a way of getting round that. But even then, that's moot. <laughs> if the uh, if the armament isn't actually um, going to fire, and in the end, the only thing for it was to replace them with old eight gun Browning machine gun armed aircraft. And the note in the operations record book of nineteen Squadron uh, said, "What wrecks? But at least the guns will fire." <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it was also uh, you know uh, you know really a properly international. Aeroplane, wasn't it? It's, it's amazing how many how many different nations used it, isn't it? Oh, it was, and um, uh, I mean, quite apart from those uh, those air forces that operated Spitfires themselves, um, uh, not least post war, but also um, in squadrons that were attached to the RAF in one way or another, um, or operated independently on the Allied side during the Second World War. Um, there are, of course, many other nations who have that part of the Spitfire legacy to their name by virtue of pilots from those countries having flown within RAF squadrons. That's it. it, it it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's the names, isn't it? You know, you, you've got Kiwi Ace, Aldea, um, you've got the South African Dutch Hugo, um, and and people like that, and it's 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 amazing how their names and their um, feats and gallantry come through as as parts of the the aeroplane's iconicness. It's um... also, I mean, 
I know Ben, you, you you've written um, you've written something um, you know for us on Kiera about this um, you know the Spitfire's kind of you know international heritage you know, and citing that kind of Battle of Britain film you know in you know filmed in sort of yeah. 1960s that real kind of the real sort of you know uh, I suppose birth if you like of the what we now know as the Warbird movement. Absolutely, it was. Um, there had been plenty of privately owned historic aircraft in the years between the end of World War II and uh, and then, but not very many. Some of them operated by uh, um, companies within the uh, industry. Others operated privately, but um, you know, generally for private enjoyment rather than display purposes, often uh, in civilian colours as well. But there's absolutely no doubt that the legacy of the Battle of Britain film, and this isn't just to do with the Spitfire, it's to do with warbirds as we came to call them. That word wouldn't have really been used in the UK at that point. More generally, um, so many people who are active on the warbird scene today, people like John Romain, Richard Lake, and so forth, their formative memories of becoming interested in these aeroplanes in particular date from 1969 when the movie was released. And in the case of, of, of John Romain, I know also from seeing the, um, uh, the filming going on in his locality when he was a kid. It's a remarkable story as to how the preparation for that film, Group Captain Hamish Mahadi bringing together that amazing fleet of historic aeroplanes, Allied and Axis, to take part, seeded the Warbird movement as we know it today. It's, uh, I was speaking to um, uh, Peter Arnold the other day, and he was he was telling me how like he he would just um, his uncle tipped him off that it was the filming was happening at Heno, so he just used to sort of like turn up. He just turned up one day to the set, and obviously security then they just sort of said, "Yeah, you come in and have a look around." I mean, <laughs> oh, just, are, can you can you imagine? Just oh, there like, are loads <laughs> of stories like that. Yeah, so we had a letter only recently from an RAF pilot who thought one day oh, I'll go along and have a have a look at my lunch hour, and they just waved him through, and he had a lovely time spit, sitting in a Spitfire and in a Bouchon and uh, <laughs> so forth. Um, uh, you know, it was quite an easygoing um, uh, filming schedule, schedule, which is one of the reasons it ran so terribly over budgets. <laughs> I just love, I mean, security guards weren't the same in the late 1960s. No. <laughs> it's, a, sure. it's touching on Ben's point about how the Spitfire has influenced so many people, both from its wartime history and into its sort of warbird years. There's so much more to that aeroplane than the aeroplane. There is a story of all the people involved in it. And again, touching on John Romain, John Romain, he hit the first Spitfire he ever saw his, is the aeroplane, his PR-11 he owns now. And you sort of think that that got him into Warbirds, that got him thinking about, you know, following a career path down that way. What would have happened if that aeroplane didn't exist? What happens if the RAF, uh, sorry, the Air Ministry had cancelled production when Supermarine couldn't meet the uh, original order of 310 airframes back then? What would have happened? What would the world have been without the Spitfire? And even today, the Spitfire still produces legends. It's, It's... Oh, that's it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that um, uh, is often underappreciated with historic aeroplanes is the extent to which new histories are forged 
in preservation. Um, and this all goes into creating the history of an airframe. And you see this with, as I say, all sorts of other aircraft, not just, uh, not just Spitfires, even ones that have been many times rebuilt. Um, and uh, yes, in the case of... Um, uh, Obviously, there is so much to be said for the the massively original examples um, uh, that still grace the skies, and which you know there will always be a very special place for. But the amazing craftsmanship that goes into resurrecting some of the other Spitfires that we've seen join the circuit in recent times is also worthy of our respect. Mm, very much, so. and I, I think touching on that again, it's it's, it's there's, there's two particular projects that stand out for me uh, due to return Spitfires to Sky, and that's the, the return of um, Piotr Laguna's um, Mark IIb uh, and also um, Pat Hughes's Mark One in Australia mm. that they've recently just announced is going to be restored. These are two very, very historic aeroplanes. Pat Hughes in particular has been quite possibly the highest scoring Spitfire of the Battle of Britain with 10 confirmed kills. And this, you know, the fact of there being um, airworthy Spitfires in so many countries now, I just think is something absolutely to um, uh, to celebrate. And we're seeing more and more nations now having their own airworthy Spitfires. Denmark now, having retired the type in the um, early to mid-1950s, now has an airworthy example, the Silver Spitfire that did the round the world flight with Boltby the other year. That's now based in Denmark. And the list goes on. It's an immensely positive development. And it is wherever the Spitfire goes, it demand respect. It's, it's, it's be it buzzing through the air or, you know, in a museum, you will see people literally stop just to catch a glimpse of it and just look at those yeah. iconic, charismatic lines. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I always think, you know, because everyone knows Everyone knows the Spitfire, don't they? I mean, you could just walk down, you know, imagine if we didn't have a social distancing kind of like rules in place, but you could, you know, you walk into any, you know, town or city centre, show someone a picture of a Spitfire and they'd know what it was, whereas they wouldn't, you know, know what lots of other, you know, you know, slightly more left field historic, you know, um, aircraft were. And it's it's properly famous in its own right, isn't it? That's true. And it's one of those aircraft that sort of (laughs) almost transcends the name uh, in that, Frankly, you could show a lot of people a picture of a hurricane or a Mustang, and they would probably go, it's a Spitfire. Yeah. Um, it's, mm. Another good example of that is if you show a lot of people a picture of a biplane, they're, I think, quite likely to go, if they were asked, what is it? They'd say, oh, it's a tiger moth. Restoring a Spitfire, though, just going back to what you were sort of saying about you know the restoration scene, I mean, it, it, the, the, the work and the sort of finances involved are quite sort of mind-boggling aren't they really oh very much so um and it it is as ben touched upon it always leads to the debate of how much of a an airplane is original um and i I won't get into that side of things because we could be here for hours and hours regarding data plates and swapping data plates Hmm. but it's um (laughs) it's a it is a hell of a lot of work, but the thing is that there is a market out there for more and more Spitfires to 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 join the skies, and I think people realise that it is a huge undertaking, and it's a, it is a huge amount of money. But they know at the end of the day, the result will be well appreciated and, and wanted. 
And public interest in the Spitfire, arguably, is only growing as the years go on. Uh, I think part of that is um, now arguably down to the availability of paid passenger rides, with the um, obviously the uh, UK CAA having uh, permitted that in recent years. Um, uh, that's been a contributory factor. And also, inevitably, as you end up with more airworthy examples. So people are going to take a greater interest in that particular type. It's something I very much think has happened with hurricanes as well, and look forward to that continuing. Hopefully it'll happen with other types. That's it. And I think it's with people showing more and more of an interest in Britain's history, especially in the past few years, I think things like REF 100 and the Battle of the Britain commemorations have helped towards that. You, yeah. you are getting more and more people that are turning up at places like Duxford where Spitfires are flying daily. And I, I remember I was doing a, um, a job at Duxford with classic wings uh, for fly past and I, I couldn't understand why there was a massive crush at the fence. Literally, the size of Duxford, everyone was at the fence and they towed a Spitfire out and everyone, that aeroplane was just going to sit there. It wasn't doing anything. Yeah. People crush at the fence just to see it and just look at it and think that's a Spitfire. That thing about daily activity is, is a very good point, Jamie, because um, uh, you know, nowadays at Duxford, I, th- I mean, how many airworthy Spitfires are based at Duxford now Ooh. permanently? Around <laughs> 15 to 16, I think it is. I'd have, to, I'd have to add it up. But certainly enough to be able to create what in 2015 was still the largest um, uh, post-service formation of, uh, of Spitfires without having to bring any in from elsewhere. And now, as you say, there is virtually daily activity by these aeroplanes. And this is before you even think of the sort of levels of activity at Biggin Hill and elsewhere that are so impressive too. And so opportunities to see that shape have never been greater. This is it. And I think with that sort of activity as well, it does lead to the Spitfire constantly being in the news, be it, you know, a standard sort of newspaper article where they're talking about, oh, you know, you can go and fly in a Spitfire or, you know, especially... uh, Stories sort of like Cliff Spink recently. He he's um, the only Warbird pilot to have flown every mark of Spitfire yeah. currently airworthy, Indeed, which is just thanks um, to Maxi Geitzer uh, letting him fly the uh, the Mark Eight. Yeah, yeah, and it, the, the stuff like that. And then you, you have other stories like uh, you know respected display pilot Charlie Brown has just surpassed fifteen hundred hours yeah. late last year in the Spitfire. And when you sort of work that out, that's more than sixty days in a Spitfire. Yeah. It's, it's, it is it is crazy. I actually we we were there, weren't we? That that weekend um, when when things sort of opened up temporarily, you know, last late yeah. last summer, wasn't it? And um, yeah, I spoke to um, Charlie Brown. He he just actually clocked, I think, the fifteen. He just surpassed fifteen hundred hours, and um, I was lucky enough to be able to have a, a chat with him. It always strikes me with pilots, they uh, how amazing they still think the Spitfire is. You know, for something that essentially, you know has been flying for 85 years and they all say just how easy it is you know and i'm sure that there have been many many aircraft being built since then <laughs> that have been you know average at best but you know it is it, every single pilot you speak to loves flying a spitfire don't they yeah I was, sorry carry on ben no go on james oh, uh, I, was, I was recently doing uh, some work with uh Stu Goldspink, and uh, he he was 
every time we're sort of chatting away about this particular aeroplane we're working on, it was sort of like we always somehow ended up back on the Spitfire. And it's, it is, it is like you say, it is one of those aeroplanes that they love flying. Um, some of the guys that do these uh, passenger flights, the SSA and Cs, they will actually relatively fight to try and get on the schedule just so they could go flying in the Spit. And the, the, the person who epitomizes what you've just described, Hans, to me, uh, is the late John Farley, the great Harrier test pilot mm-hmm. who um, sadly died a few years ago. Absolutely delightful man. He flew what uh, one hates to sort of admit to one's favourites, but my favourite Spitfire, if pressed, is MH434, the Mark IX from the old yep. flying machine company, the one that I grew up watching more than any other. Um, and... Uh, he flew that for OFMC for, uh, as it transpired, just one season in the early 1990s. And he obviously uh, you know, had, had enormous flying experience in his background. But even he said, I walked out to do my first flight in the aeroplane fairly apprehensively, thinking I must not break this thing. It's a national <laughs> treasure, really. And um, he went on to say, as soon as I got airborne and did a couple of bits of handling, it became obvious to me that it flew beautifully. The aeroplane wanted to fly. And I think coming from somebody with experience on so many fast jets, um, so many great exploits in the Harrier alone, um, for him to have found flying the Spitfire, and especially that particular Spitfire, so special, really says it all. Is is it's funny you you mentioned MH four three four, and uh, instantly my mind goes back to uh, the Battle of Britain show at Duxford in two thousand and nineteen, with Brian Smith flying oh. that absolutely incredible display to the last post in salute to Mark Hanna. It was spellbinding. It was absolutely spellbinding. It's uh, it, that that will live with me for a very 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 long time. That was yeah. just you had to put your camera down and just watch it. Yeah. So, so for you two, finally, I mean, where where does the Spitfire, you know, sit in, you know, overall in in terms of you know the great historic aeroplanes? Now that that that's a debate subject in itself, and that that could require a that's fair few points. Yeah, quite, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, in terms of the in terms of British, it is the quintessential British aeroplane. And you will not find another aeroplane within the UK that gains that much respect or popularity 85 years on since it first flew. And I know people turn around and say, yes, but there's the Vulcan, you know, there's the Phantom, there's the Tornado, everything like that. But the Spitfire is what it is. Um, and it it it's it is one of those things, it, it just deems respect the minute you see it the minute you see it, you know it's oozing history all the airplanes that are sat there um and i mean as as battle of britain pilot cocky dundas said the spitfire never let him down and it never let the country down when it was needed the most I think from my perspective, um, uh, that sums up its place very, very well, Jamie, in our history. Um, uh, as far as comparing to other types is concerned, that's where you run into more difficulties because, of course, obviously different aircraft are designed to do different things. And so uh, you know, it would be virtually impossible to come to any sort of hard and fast opinion as to whether the Spitfire is superior to the Mustang. So they're different aircraft that were 
designed to do and did different things. And that's even before you then start thinking about the great aircraft that performed other roles. But, um, of course, there is no avoiding the fact that the Spitfire always for many years has been and will forever remain the great British aeroplane. And that will ensure its place in the Pantheon. Very much so. Can't can't add anything more to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, absolutely uh, amazing aeroplane. Look, I think you know we're we're nearly out of time. Thanks very much, guys. No, thank See? you for having us. Thank you. No, no, Ben. How did you, you, you your first time? How 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 was it? It's been delightful. Yes, thank you. In spite of recording quite early in the morning for me, um, <laughs> I, uh, I I've somehow got through it. <laughs> yeah, well, look, we're, there's, there's no stopping us. We can do anything now. If we can record a podcast at nine in the morning, we can do anything. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell the big bosses that they'll have us in earlier. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks very much for listening. Um, same time again next week. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.